Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 175, air date September 13th, 2017. That in the context of actually um, what I was just sharing earlier, why it's important we have people actually work for a living who actually innovate, do science, and understand in the 21st century. What we've um, done to this country, we've put in career politicians in office. And most of these people know very, very little about science. They, they don't really know much about working for a living. Um, uh, most of them don't really know when they say, I know how to create jobs. And none of them have ever created a job. They've essentially taken other people's jobs, or they've uh, essentially done things for their own self-serving interests. The founders of this country, if you go back to the history of this country, um, were any of them career politicians? Any of them? No. Uh, they, their interest was really to create a nation. They were innovating a new country, which was based on something very interesting, that between us and our creator, there wasn't supposed to be any intermediaries. And most of these people, you know, for example, there were blacksmiths, Washington was a surveyor. Um, there were architects, inventors, entrepreneurs. And the notion was that we would create a country where people who actually had skills could take risks and they could, um, you know, the infinite was possible. But over the last many, many years, probably talk, starting around the 40s, if you look in the United States, um, one of the big things that started happening was you started having a collusion uh, between the military, big industry, and academia. So as a result of that, what you ended up creating was a military-industrial academic complex, which is what we have right now, where there's a collusion between academics, career politicians, big corporations in the military, and that organization, some people called it the deep state, some people call it all sorts of names, but that entity uh, wants to control narratives on many, many things. And as a part of that, science has become pay to play. Right? There was a time when, um, if you look at universities like UMass, MIT, Harvard, that you essentially um, went into the university to be able to be radical, to be able to speak your mind, to have academic freedom, and to do really innovative research. Starting around the 40s, the reason I give that as a data point was that was some people, uh, a very famous history of science professor, uh, David Noble, said that's when we started moving away from that place where universities were in Haven for doing real wild research to where you started having a collusion between military research and universities. So Vannevar Bush, for example, the president of MIT, is around that time when he started uh, Raytheon. So since that time, what we've created now is an environment that, um, you know, if you go into academia, you have seven years, I don't know if you guys know this, to get tenure. Everyone aware of this? Yeah. Everyone know how you get tenure? Staying quiet. That's well, one thing. You're voting by like, the other tenure. Yeah, what else? The way you get tenure, so you have seven years, you have to write papers, and you have to um, have those papers cited by your peers, and your peers telling you that you're like the best, one of the best in the field. So let me just, so if um, Miles over there wants to be a professor and he starts today, he's got seven years to prove, let's say all of you, everyone else in this room are his colleagues, to prove to all of you he's a great guy, he does great research, He's a scholar. Now, how does he do that? He writes papers, and it's not sufficient. He may write a thousand papers, but if none of you 
let's say you're on the same field of agricultural research, and you don't cite his research, like, oh, Miles has done some wonderful research, and you cite his research as a part of your work, and he doesn't get any citations, then his research will basically be seen as sort of useless. You follow? So it's like how uh, bogus Wikipedia works. You could write some nonsense over here, and someone cites you, which could be completely lies, Wikipedia considers that a reference. Wikipedia says it's not based on truth. I don't know if you know that. It's based on citations. So if Miles, for example, makes friends with all of you, and you say, oh, I'm going to cite Miles' research, and maybe you give him something in return, um, he has all these citations. When his tenure review comes up, everyone says, he's a great guy in the field. This is sort of the racket of academia. Everyone follow this? So what, what therefore happens is, let's say Marcelo is like the leader in the field of some research, okay? I don't know, GMO research. And he's become the head of a major department at like University of Florida. Now, I'll give you, University of Florida is one of the big ag agrobiotech uh, universities. And if he's become the head of research there, and he's, you know, he's done his, whatever, his gamesmanship, and let's say Miles is a new graduate student at UMass Boston, and he's finding out some very interesting research which counters you. Well, he starts, you think, what's the chance of him ever getting published and him ever getting cited? Because he may be the head of the major journal, where if Miles were to submit his paper, may never get nixed or he could get blackballed. Okay? So when Elizabeth Warren, for example, says she's like the leader in the bankruptcy field of research, we don't know all the gamesmanship she paid, played to get those citations. And I can tell you, it's a lot of bootlicking that goes on. I didn't want to use another word, but that's what it takes. That's what academic research has become. So that's why academics, are, they're more career politicians. I think Kissinger said, if you want to go learn how to be a politician, go to academia. Because you're doing all your deal making there. And they're not fighting for anything. <laughs> They're just fighting for what? Are they fighting for money, academics? They're fighting for something even more powerful than money, which is control. They want to control narratives. They want to control the direction of something. So if they want to say, well, black people, if they don't have enough bumps on their head, they're stupid, that becomes a narrative. You see what I'm saying? Or women are dumb, right? They can write a paper arguing that. So academics, that's... You know, they want to own narratives that could last lifetimes. Right? So that's the academic priesthood. Um, and what's happened now is that the fake news behind the fake news is the academic community. Because journalists don't do any research. They just sort of go to their academic, you know, whoever they want to support their narrative, and they just cite them. Blah, 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 professor, blah, 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 said this. Therefore, it's the truth. And I'm telling you this, someone who's been in and out of MIT over 32 years, 33 years, four degrees, including my PhD in biolog biological engineering, and I know the racket. That's what these guys do. You got it? So you have to understand that framework to understand that's the reality of what's going on. Um, so. Many years ago, um, I'll give you sort of the background on this, and pretty as I'm doing this, you can also go, go back and forth to the slides if people are listening, but um, the reality of this is genetically engineered foods are a relatively new phenomenon. And the issue comes up, are they safe or not? 
right? So that's the key question. Remember when x-rays first came? Great technology, right? But it took many years for us to realize we needed shielding. Otherwise, you're going to do DNA damage. So genetic, genetic engineering is, is a similar technology. And I'll give you sort of, I'll, I'll walk you through some slides, but one of the questions we wanted to ask was, do genetically engineered foods accumulate for, formaldehyde and disrupt what we call the molecular systems, equilibrium means homeostasis? And I'll come to this. So you're going to learn some science also today. But the fundamental question is, um, as you're thinking about this in the 21st century genetic engineering, a big, big area, right? We're in the center of biotech here. 3D printing, software engineering, um, robotics, AI. We're sending people into government who have no idea of any of this. They've never programmed a computer. They don't even, most of them probably don't know chemistry. They don't know biology. They can't even talk about this yet. They're doing policy. And what they do is they rely on political consultants and consultants who are from academia. Right, Jonathan Gruber, you know that professor at MIT who said people were stupid. And remember that? For Obamacare. And they caught him on mic and Trey Gowdy ripped him. You can go look at it online. But that was a guy who knew Obamacare was nonsense and he was pushing it. He was one of the architects of it, saying, oh, the public is essentially stupid. We can, we can have them buy it. Still a professor at MIT. So academics get away with murder. They throw Wall Street guys in jail, but have you ever heard of an academic being thrown in jail for writing complete garbage? They get away with it because they've created this aura as though they're, you know, untouchables or, you know, or above untouchables, something else, you know, beyond that. So let me start with you a little bit of this. So we, we wrote a series of papers um, demonstrating very fundamental research we did, and you have to understand, in academic research, there's journals, and you have to publish in a journal, and someone has deemed these are reputable journals and these are not reputable journals. Today, what's happened is there's open access journals, but because um, the trend now is, if you're a researcher, you know, you go through peer review, people review your research, you know, and then if they think your research is good, then they publish it in a journal. And when it gets published in that journal, um, it's only accessible to people who pay a fee. So if all of you want to see an article that I wrote in one of these journals, you have to pay a fee. Um, most universities already pay that fee, so that's why you're able to get it. Uh, but if you're average Joe, you can't see that unless you pay a fee. Some, sometimes the articles are 50 bucks, 100 bucks, $200 to download that. So about 15, 20 years ago, a new model started called open access journals which meant that once your journal is accepted, you as the author pay a fee. The university typically pays a thousand bucks, but it's open to everyone. You pay once, but everyone accesses it. Um, Randy Sheckman, the guy who won the Nobel Prize in medicine, um, he published in Nature, huge uh, biology journal, Cell, all the major journals, and he said it's a, it's a racket. After he won his Nobel Prize, he did a whistleblowing on all of them. So, most of these major journals are headed by the quote-unquote leaders who control access. You follow what I'm saying? By the way, Einstein never published one paper in a peer-reviewed journal. He thought it was all a racket. Towards the later part of his life when he submitted a paper and they said, oh, we have to submit this for peer review, he said, what are you talking about? He goes, how can my peers review something that's innovative? So this is how they shut down new stuff. 
And the theory should be, if you get publicly funded, or you're a researcher, you just go out. Let the people decide. But a small set of people try to control what the public see. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because they think they're smarter, and this is where Elizabeth Warren and the career politicians, that whole political class comes into play. Because they think they know better, but the reality is I think most people know better. They don't even. Um, so let me uh, show you a little bit here. Um, this graph is an interesting graph. You notice it starts around, you see that number 100,000 up there? Everyone see that? Anyone know what that number is? It's the estimate in the, in, in the mid-1990s of the number of genes we thought a human being had. This was before the genome project started. Simple biology, um, everyone has features in their body, the color of your eyes, the color of your hair, the size of your nose, etc. Uh, the theory is that each one of those features, there's a gene which codes for that. So if your mom has you know, blonde hair and your dad has black hair, sometimes there's mixtures that take place and you get recessive. Essentially, there's genes for every feature you have. So the notion was we thought we had about 100,000 genes. Where did that estimate come from? Because we knew a worm had about 20,000 genes. So we said, oh, human beings are a lot more complex than a worm, so we must have at least five times more genes. Well, what's fascinating is you notice as time goes by, what happens? The estimates keep changing because they're not finding enough genes. In fact, it turns out we only have about 20,000 genes. We have about the same number of genes as a worm. Okay? So what this meant was this completely, so the irony of the Human Genome Project, it, it, it put everything, it flipped everything. It said, look, what's really interesting is not the number of genes, but something more interesting, which a new field emerged called systems biology, which said if you want to understand the whole human being, it's not just the genes, but all the, the, the uh, proteins that the genes create and how they interact together. So think about genes more as a fixed set of keys on a piano, right? How many songs can you play? How many songs can we play? Infinite. So, because you playing a song may be very different than you or you or you, but because it's the creativity that hits those keys, the fingers. And those fingers here, the way I like to think about it is the environment, what you eat potentially, okay? What you think, pollution, environment, all those things. Those things can turn on and turn off genes. So what becomes more interesting is now, starting around 2003, people said, you know, it's really not, oops, uh, it's really not the genes, but it's all the molecular interactions that take place. It's a choreography of all these proteins, because those can emerge many, many things. So in 2002, I was running a company. It was my sixth company. I started to analyze email. Uh, my second life with email, I did it originally for the White House in 93. We built that to around a $250 million company. And I was coming back to MIT, visiting a, a professor of mine, uh, Forbes Dewey, and he said, Shiva, you got to come back and finish your PhD. There's a really cool field, um, which is about could you mathematically model the human cell, which means combine computing with biology. And it's an interest that I've had for many, many years. Uh, if you've listened to me before, you know, I grew up in India uh, in, in a small village as well as in a big city. My grandmother was a village healer. She, could, she practiced a traditional form of Indian medicine where she could observe your face predict different organ dysfunctions, and you know, there's a whole system of Indian science. So I was fascinated how this woman with no degrees was able to heal people. So my journey when I came to the United States, I was very interested in medicine. When I was 14, I was working as a full-time 
worker at a medical school where I invented the first email system. I can talk about that later. But I learned how to create large-scale systems. And I, uh, at that time, I'd done three different degrees in engineering. So I came back to MIT, and the idea was, if you think about the human cells, a big mixture, like a big refiner, you have about 10 trillion cells in your body. But if you could understand how one cell communicates, it's, it's a very difficult problem. Um, then you could do really cool things. And by the way, this is what a molecular path, this is just one little pathway. This looks like those football diagrams you see on Monday Night Football. But basically, molecules interact together and they are dancing around. So someone could spend their whole life just understanding that and win a Nobel Prize just for that. And like this, there are many, many hundreds of thousands of proteins interacting. So the issue is, if you could mathematically model that on the computer, then you could start understanding the complexity of what's going on versus just sort of just doing a single animal experiment, right? So I built a technology called Cytosol where we said, look, let's really start viewing the cell as a collection of pathways. We could treat them as individual models, and we created this whole infrastructure. So if email was the electronic version of the inner office mail communication system, Cytosol was the electronic version of the molecular communication system. So I spent um, you know, five years at MIT doing this, it was the basis of my thesis. Uh, we published one of the first papers in 2011, another paper later on, but we published tons of papers to validate this. One of the interesting things that happened was Nature, one of the most esteemed journals, um, uh, wrote this interesting article saying, if you're gonna solve cancer, you can't do it with a single drug, you have to do it through combinations. The way that they develop drugs today, um, they do it with one drug. To do combinations, they have to kill a lot more animals, it's too expensive. So combination therapy is really not afforded by the current system. But people have said, if you can use a computer, it'd be cool. And we were the only ones cited in here, which is like a big thing. So we didn't pay off anymore. Remember the Miles example? So what we ended up doing was we actually ended up using Cytosol to do that. In fact, we discovered a drug for pancreatic cancer, got it allowed by the FDA in 11 months. This is very powerful technology. So these were many, many papers we published. So I'll give you an example of the power of this kind of technology. So this is your artery. When you guys exercise or you run, you, any runners here? Exercise. When, when you run, that's an artery, blood, those arrows represent blood flow throughing it, through, through your artery. And what, when blood flows, your body actually releases a very important chemical called nitric oxide. Um, that's, that's a base of Viagra, by the way. Viagra increases nitric oxide. So people, uh, one of the guys in our lab was literally, it took him many years, he set up a wet lab experiment where he could generate blood flow and he could measure nitric oxide. If you go look at the papers that are written out there, many, many people talk about all the little ball and stick mechanisms. Now if you wanted to put this together, you can see it's very difficult. With our technology, we're actually able to do that. So we can actually read papers out there, extract out the mechanisms, and interconnect them and mathematically compute them. You guys got it? The reason this is important is, right now, you could be the guy at Harvard who says, oh, you know, this is how nitric oxide goes, and my, my religion, everyone's got to follow. Someone at Stanford could say his religion. We have the ability to be objective, take the known research, and interconnect them. And we're not saying it's perfect, but we could get a better idea. So here's a prediction of what we're predicting of how much uh, nitric oxide one of the precursors releases. And what you notice there is, see those black lines? That's the actual wet lab research. So that's how close we are. Everyone following that? So this is pretty impressive, which means our, the black line is our prediction 
the dots are what came from the wet lab. So we knew, so we published in cells by a physical journal, um, and then we've done many other areas of this, and I'm not going to belabor you with this. The, the, uh, the, we did a project from the military to look at how multi-ingredient supplements work together to understand toxicity. The bottom line of sharing this with you is we have some very powerful ways to actually understand at the molecular level um, what's going on with this very radical technology. Um, and one of the things that happened was uh, this article, this, so this is in 2014, I built this technology up, we were publishing papers. This article comes on the front page of MIT Technology Review, one of the most esteemed technology journals. Everyone see what it says? What does it say? Do you know what, what, what that's a takeoff on? Mm -hmm. I understand what they're trying to buy fresh by local. Buy fresh by local. So if you go, you know a lot of the people who are really into organic food and to yoga and to healthy eating. Everyone said, you know, we should buy fresh by local, which is what the founders actually wanted: decentralized government, local farms. Right? We've created factory farms right now. Right? Uh, Monsanto and Dove, uh, Dow, if you remember, they created Agent Orange and to delivery of uh, Agent Orange to defoliate Vietnam. Then that same technology got reused to create, you know, to dump pesticides for factory farms. The pesticide that Monsanto created was called glyphosate, G-L-Y-P-H-O-S-A-T, uh, trade name known as Roundup. So this article is saying buy fresh, buy GMO. Now, what's fascinating is if you look at this, this is, looks look, looks like it's almost an ad for the GMO industry, doesn't it? And this is supposed to be a technology journal from one of the most eminent scientific institutions. I was on the front page of this, by the way, in 2000 when I created one of my companies. So you get a, you know, I mean, it goes global. So I was reading this, and I was like a little perturbed because if you read it over here, it says population growth and climate change will make it harder to feed the world. We need to overcome our fears of genetically modified food. Okay. So what is genetically modified food? What it is is, so let's say you have a feature over here in one organism, and another organism has a different feature, and you, you want to have this feature show up in this organism, you literally take the gene out from here and you put it in this organism. Now, let me tell you what the problem with this, this is not sexual, there's no sex taking place here. Um, and the New York Times, a lot of the academics uh, have confused the public saying, wait a minute, uh, you know, for centuries the Incans have been, you know, naturally breeding corn. We've already been doing quote-unquote genetic modification. There's a very interesting way that, that they manipulated the words genetic modification, genetic engineering. In Europe, the term was used genetically engineered foods, genetically engineered foods, left parentheses GMOs, okay, genetically modified organisms. When it came to the United States, we started using GMOs to mean broadly genetic modification. Yes, when plants crossbreed, there's genetic modification going on. But that's very different than in a petri dish when you're taking the gene of a salmon, right, which allows it to uh, maintain resistance to cold weather, and you're putting it into a tomato. That never could occur in nature. You follow? Because a, a salmon and a tomato don't have sex. They don't, right? But that is what we're talking about. And the notion was, well, when we take this little itsy-weeny teeny gene over here and we put it over here, don't worry, we're not changing much. That the tomato is still the tomato. Okay? 
all we've done is make it more resistant. So, um, and then the, the background of this is, well, look, the, the poor people in India and China, always, they always rationalize, you know, people always leverage the poor to justify, um, you know, whatever they want to do. The poor people in Africa, they need this because their population is exploding. Forget the fact that for centuries they've been doing indigenous farming, they know how to take care of their soil, they have, you know, thousands of years of indigenous knowledge. So, um, in this case, I'll be very specific to the genetic engineering, Monsanto um, started dumping um, for, uh, uh, a, a herbicide, herbicides different than pesticide, right? Pesticides kill pests, herbicides kill weeds, okay? Called glyphosate. So if you were a farmer in the Midwest and you're growing soybeans um, or you're growing corn, you bought Monsanto's Roundup and or you you know, they, you dumped it on your factory farm fields, it, it would kill the weeds. What was happening though was, so, and by the way, you paid for a license to buy that. You're paying them X a month. Um, at some point, it's not killing, it's also killing some of the corn, right? So your yields aren't as good. So it's killing the corn and the weeds. So then Monsanto says, okay, we got that business monopolized. We're going to create our own version, let's say, of soy, genetically engineered soy. They call it Roundup Ready Soy, RRS, Roundup Ready Soy. So I'm going to go to you. You're already my customer for pesticides. I'm going to ask you to buy the Roundup Ready Soy. So when you plant the Roundup Ready Soy, what it will do is when you spray the herbicide, it will not kill our soy plant, but it may kill the organic soy. What they did was they genetically engineered into that Roundup Ready soy a gene from a bacterium that it's, the details are not fully clear, but to make, give it a secondary immune system. So the glyphosate would destroy the weeds, would actually destroy the original organic soy plant's immune system, but the Roundup Ready soybeans could withstand it. And what, Roundup, what uh, Monsanto did was they told you that you have to pay me a license fee for it, annual license fee. I think you've know, heard about this where like, if somebody decides to reuse the crop again in the future. You can't. You have to pay. It's, like, it's like a software license fee. It's a software model. So after one year, you can't use those seeds. Because remember, your soy plants, if you, if you plant them, it's not allowed. So very strict licensing materials. It's more interesting, let's say you're, Marcelo's a farmer next door, that soy plant goes over, you have organic, they will come to you and say you owe us X for licensing RC, okay? And they've enforced this. The courts have ruled in their favor on this, in fact. Everyone getting this? It's a little bit complicated. Any questions? So basically now, what's your name? I'm George. So they're making two sources of revenue from George. He's got to buy the pesticides and he's got to buy their seeds in an annual revenue model. So they want to expand that to India, Africa, etc. You know, and that's where the Gates Foundation comes in. You know, Bill Gates and Melinda Gates are pounding all your GMOs are great. Um, I just did a big conference in India in 2015 with one of the leading people in the agricultural department. And these countries don't need GMOs. Most of it is through is because of distribution uh, and tools and training and irrigation. It's not about GMOs. And in fact, I'm going to show you what the reality is now, okay? So when I saw this, I said, wow, what's really going on? So this is 2014, we're from 2003. I built this very powerful technology, 
we've published, and no one, can, this is, no one can say this is bogus, we published in their journals. So we said, why don't we use Cytosol for this? And the first paper we published um, was, we published this first paper, you can just focus on, that, on this, discovering three molecular pathways that make up C1 metabolism. Let me explain what C1 metabolism is. Um, we went through about 11,000 papers in the literature with our technology. Not one, but 11,000. We identified 216 relevant, and we um, found three major molecular systems. What we found was every plant, fungi, and bacteria in the universe have a system, like an engine in your car. And that system involves these three components. I don't want to get into the details, but it's, it's, a, it's like a, a methionine biosynthesis, which makes methionine. The methylation cycle uses the methionine. And in that process, formaldehyde is created. As you know, formaldehyde is pretty toxic. But the plant detoxifies it, right? So plants are making formaldehyde as a waste product, like you poop, right? But they have a way to clean it up using a very interesting chemical called glutathione. If you, if, you, if you Google glutathione, you'll find out it's the most important antioxidant to all life. Um, as you age, glutathione levels drop. It's, it's in many ways probably anti-aging, one of the best anti-aging antioxidants, okay? So the plants are churning away, they're making formaldehyde, and glutathione is depleted, but it basically cleans it up, got it? So the first paper we published very quietly was, we just published the fact that we identified these three pathways, okay? Remember, we weren't ready to publish everything, because if we did, we'd probably get knocked off, so we wanted to build very quietly. So we published this. No one said anything, no problem, okay? Then, and by the way, these are the pathways in methionine biosynthesis. By the way, all of these are coming from thousands of papers, you see? So we're literally aggregating human knowledge, which these guys don't like to do. They like to have their narratives, right? They like to be the guys who look at the elephant and just look at one tusk and say it's a spear, or the tail and they say it's a brush. They don't like to look at the elephant because it may reveal things that can go against their narrative. And this is methylation, and we published this very quietly. The second paper we did was, we said, um, why don't we actually mathematically model this? So the first one was really understanding the ball and stick diagrams. So then we mathematically modeled this um, using Cytosol, what I just shared with you. We took all those three pathways, interconnected them, and we noticed here was, this is basically saying glutathione levels in normal plants don't get depleted, meaning they maintain. So the plant is able, it runs, so in a normal plant, glutathione is maintained. Everyone following? This is the normal case. How, and then in the, in the normal plant, formaldehyde does get created, but it gets detoxed. You see that? It gets created and it gets detoxed. Everyone following? Yep. That was paper number two we published, no one said anything, okay? Then, uh, and, we, and we tested this, we tested under different things, it always gets detoxed nicely. Then we said, you know what, this important pathway, by the way, which occurs in every bacteria in your gut, every plant, every fungi, also has many other, it work, remember we're a system of systems that works with other components. So then we said, what happens, you see in the upper right, oxidative stress, you know what that is? If you ever get stressed out, you're under stress. When a plant gets under a lot of pollution, that's called oxidative stress. Or when a plant um, is under drought conditions. It's basically, we are all resilient creatures. So nature has created that we can handle a certain amount of stress and your body will go into a different mode and then it, it survives. So we said, what happens when a plant, 
undergoes oxidative stress, like when it's under drought conditions or when it's under pollution. Again, we went through the literature, we had to dig up other pathways, and these were the pathways of oxidative stress. Again, other subsystems. Everyone following me? Mm -hmm. And we modeled that. And we said, okay, let's connect oxidative stress, and these are the molecular pathways of oxidative stress. And we interconnected this, this system when a plant's under stress to the normal system. Like, what happens? Okay? What happens when a plant undergoes stress? And what you notice here, put all of this together with cytosol. So the green is glutathione in the normal case, right? But you see the red, so when a plant undergoes oxidative stress, it uses up its glutathione because it's in a flight or fight response. So it's many, very much like what we undergo, okay? So, but remember, typically a pollution situation or drought situation doesn't last forever, and the plant is able to come up. And interesting enough, what you notice is that formaldehyde, you notice it grows because you've depleted your glutathione, so your plant doesn't have enough of this detergent to clean up the formaldehyde. Everyone following? So it's like a yin-yang system, okay? More glutathione, less formaldehyde, less glutathione, more formaldehyde. So we published this again quietly, no one said anything, okay? Same thing we're showing, how glutathione levels are falling, formaldehyde levels accumulate under different conditions. Now this was a paper that got us into trouble. Um, we said, there, there have been a number of reports that came out from farmers saying when they were looking at their GMO corn or their soy, empirically it had high levels of formaldehyde. And no one was able to explain it. And typically it was pushed up. No one wanted to discuss it. Remember, the, the, what people are saying is, don't worry, Monsanto saying, we're just making this little genetic modification, this little itsy weeny teeny weeny modification. But the soy, the organic one that he has, yeah. Marcelo has, and the one that you have, George, they're the same. Based on that, that's how Monsanto gets it out. It's called substantial equivalence, and I'll come back to this. According to a guideline that the FDA has proposed, it's not even a law, you, can, you and I can start a GMO company, and all we have to simply let the FDA know is that our GMO blueberry that we created is substantially equivalent to the organic one. By criteria we choose and we self-report. And I'll get back to that, okay? So the issue is, is the GMO soy equivalent to the non-GMO soy? So what's the difference? GMO soybean, non-GMO soybean. Is there a difference, okay? So what we found was we looked at a lot of papers and we found out when the genetic modification, remember that little itsy-weeny, teeny-weeny thing that they used to create the Roundup Ready soy? Papers, various papers said that these four enzymes were upregulated, which means at a higher level in the GMO version. You following me? Catalase, superdoxate, glutathione reductase, and ascorbate. And this one, um, and then one of these, uh, H2O2. So basically, the bottom line is, people had found in disparate research that these five variables were different. So we took that difference and we plugged it into our model. Remember, now we published three papers. So we built up a, a body of work. So if people wanted to knock us out, they'd have to go knock out all those together papers. Um, and so we said, what happens? And what we found out was that the genetic modification takes place, guess what? It was causing oxidative stress. The poor plant was thinking it was under attack. And when you plug all of this together, so, those, so we went back to our model, and we said, what happens when these variables are being manipulated in that big complex model? Because we knew that. 
So this is a whole system. You see how we built it? Far right was the original system, oxidative, and then genetic modification. And we put all this together, and this is what we find. We found out the formaldehyde was accumulating. Why? Because um, in the non-GMO version, you know, formaldehyde is created and it gets depleted, right? It's detox. Here it accumulates, and the reason is, what we showed was, it was precisely because glutathione levels were dropped. That genetic modification was actually putting that plant into stress, into a different homeostasis. And in fact, what we calculated was that the glutathione level was around 250% less, right? Which, which means it's very different. When we, uh, so we, you know, and so that's glutathione, that's the other case. And we published this. And we got a lot of MDs and scientists to review this and they supported us. Um, what happened as a result of this, I'll, I'll bring this up in the next slide here. Um, ended up happening was when we published this, um, a professor at the University of Florida, like UMass Boston, it's a public school, started attacking me. He said, this guy didn't invent email, he's a fraud, right? Uh, personal attacks, nothing against any of the research. Not the models, none of it. And then he went on to say, I am a, he said, by the way, he's the head of the horticultural department. Chairman, and he, uh, Kevin Folta who's a rabid uh, pro-GMO guy, pro-Monsanto, but he said, I have nothing to do with Monsanto. I am an independent scientist. I don't get paid by them, etc." cetera. Uh, coincidence to what we were doing, a guy called Gary Ruskin at a nonprofit called US Right to Know It issued a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. You guys ever heard of that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, against, so public university, like if a professor here, if he's getting federal funding, I could issue a FOIA on him and get all of his emails because he's his UMass email. So Gary issued that on Fulton, 4,000 emails came out. One of the emails is literally an attachment, a letter from Monsanto, giving him 25 grand to be their spokesman. Now up until then, the New York Times was just cutting and pasting these acting, oh, GMOs are no big deal, they're the same as natural plant breeding. Again, a bunch of frankly idiots, journalists. They don't know science, they cut and paste what academics tell them because there's a lot of money behind this. Um, so what happened is, obviously I think I shared with you, this is what we showed, um, and what happened is these sort of articles started coming out. Because see, the fake news guys, you have to like catch them right red-handed. Otherwise, they, they're very slippery. So this said, food industry enlisted academics in GMO, GMO warring, and funny thing is the irony is it came out through emails. Um, how Monsanto mobilized academics to pen articles. In fact, there was a professor at Harvard who was shown he was literally cutting and pasting an abstract that Monsanto had sent him. So think about this. No one at MIT has really spoken up against this, and you have to ask why. Harvard, no one says anything against it. And I had to fund our own research over here, and I could do it because I was, I'd made money. We have our own institution. 
So, um, and this one, these emails show Monsanto leaning on professors to fight the GMO PR war. What's more interesting is Elizabeth Warren, all the lefties, quote-unquote lefties, I don't even know what that means anymore, quote-unquote liberals, think she's such a great fighter. Well, she voted for the Monsanto Protection Act. What is the Monsanto Protection Act? The Monsanto Protection Act means that if, if science or someone finds that genetically engineered foods are harmful to human consumption and a judge rules in their favor, right, it goes through court, so you put all the money into the court lawsuits and you win. And the judge does an injunction telling Monsanto you can't plant that. Let's say you went through the judicial process. The executive branch, the Department of Agriculture, could overrule that judge and stop that. And this was done under the Obama administration. Obama appointed a guy called Michael Taylor, who was a former executive vice president, vice president of policy, science policy at Monsanto, to be the deputy director of the FDA. And when Taylor came in, people were wondering, well, how do we figure out what's the guidelines for GMOs? He said, let's use a policy called substantial equivalence which was signed into law during the Ford administration in the 76 for figuring out if one medical device was around substantially equivalent to another. And I'll, if you want, I can talk about that. But it was an old law for medical devices. So if you created a stethoscope, you know, it took you seven years to get it allowed through the FDA, and later you made one itsy weeny teeny weeny change, like change the color. In the old days, it used to take you another long time. And Ford said, we want to support American innovation, so he said, hey, if the stethoscope, if you as a manufacturer can, so it's about the same, you can fast track it. But that has nothing to do with, you know, complexity of a biological organism. So in the new model, going back to the blueberry thing, you and I simply tell the FDA, we've done our test in our own back room, and the FDA says, thank you very much, and they issue a safety consultation letter, and we're allowed to distribute it. There is no, it's all self-reporting. There are no safety assessment standards for genetic engineering foods. It's all BS. Complete BS. But most of these academics will say they're safe. Well, they're not. There are no standards. A pharmaceutical company, before they can issue you a drug, has got to go through in vitro testing, animal testing, clinical trial phase one, phase two, phase three. There's none of that for this stuff. Um, now, the reason I think this is important is that this is not new. There's a great movie, if you haven't seen, called Inside Job, written, uh, done by this guy Charles Ferguson. Um, there's a professor at Columbia, if you watch this movie. Remember when the 2009 crash took place? This guy wrote a beautiful, doesn't this look like a great academic article, nice font? You see how nicely it's done? It looks professional, right? This is what academics do. They write, they spend a lot of time on their font selection. They spend a lot of time on their headlines. They're actually t storytellers. They really do. Then they call up their friends to make sure my article's coming, please cite it, because I gotta get tenure. Um, so he writes this article talking about the financial stability in Iceland, like Iceland's a great economy. Well, two months after this entire economy of Iceland collapses. In the interview that he does, he's interviewing him and he goes to his website where you know professors like to list their resumes. And on the website, he's changed the title of this article to the instability, the financial instability of Iceland. Can you believe that? He still has a job there. Uh, uh, 
for 50 years is a great book called The Golden Holocaust, how academics and uh, the, the uh, cigarette industry colluded to write all sorts of wonderful papers saying that you know smoking was good for you. And that's why you think you said stuff like this. So what I'm trying to share with you, and obviously we remember the big story with Galileo, right? Clear evidence, the sun's the center of the solar system. It was only 1992 that the Catholic Church say, oh, we're sorry. And I share this is that, um, as I start, and I'll, am I right on time? Uh, yeah, we got to report, so we got an hour. Okay. Right, yeah. So uh, when everyone, so Eisenhower was in the military. When he was leaving office, his last speech he gave was he said, beware of the military-industrial complex. By the way, he actually had military-industrial-academic complex. His speechwriter um, was a former president of MIT who deleted the word academic. You see, academics always cover their trails. They're the really the more insidious people, in my view. And, but Fulbright, he later wrote this book called The Pentagon Pro Propaganda Machine, and he used the first time in a, uh, in a university presentation, Military Industrial Academic Complex. The reason th this is sort of personal to me is, when I invented the first email system as a 14-year-old kid, and the facts of this are this, that in the old days we had a thing called the inter-office mail system, system, where secretary of the inbox, outbox, folders, and carbon copy, all those things. I converted that entire system, which no one had done before, into the electronic version. Wrote 50,000 lines of code, called it email, and did it in Newark, New Jersey, as a 14-year-old immigrant kid. Didn't make a penny off. In fact, when I first came to MIT, they discussed it on the front page. In fact, I'm gonna give a talk at MIT today on this. Um, forgot about it. About five years, uh, in 2011, my mom was going uh, uh, had pulmonary fibrosis. She was dying of a horrible disease in a suitcase. She had left all these materials, and all the computer code, everything. Time Magazine wrote an article called The Man Who Invented Email. That's when the story started coming out 30 years later. Then it went into the Smithsonian and it created this huge uproar. Gawker Media called me a fraud, all sorts of horrible names. People said this curry stand Indian should be beaten and hanged. We, people went on Wikipedia and started destroying stuff. It wasn't that the facts are so obvious. I called it email, a term I never used, I wrote the code. Before that was simple methods of text messaging, but that's not email. Anyway, we sued Gawker, we won. Another uh, garbage blog called Tector continued, and he wanted me to sue him, we did. The courts now are in a very interesting place. Remember, Trump's been attacking fake news, and the media's getting very scared, because after we won Gawker, the liberal court system wants to be very afraid to protect the media. You follow me? So they dismissed it, but we're going to be appealing it. We're not going to let it go, because the fact is a 14-year-old... And by the way, it's not about the invention of email. It's more that you cannot... The, the right of the First Amendment doesn't let you uh, call someone a fraud. I believe in free speech. As you know, I was one of the 40 people who faced 40,000 people at the free speech event. But free speech also means true free speech. Right? You have to be truthful. And if you're not truthful, you can get sued. That's a marketplace of ideas. So um, the reality is that the military-industrial academic complex, which is like a caste system, and that's me when I invented that email system, um, if you go to this, many women played a role in this, but this military, let me just go back to this, this system here, um, I was a part of this when I was at MIT, but when I say email was created outside of this, you see it changes the narrative. You follow me? Because the theory is all great innovation must come out of big universities, 
the military, and the industrial complex. And that's what the story of email perturbs. That's why um, Monsanto's story is very related to this, because the notion is for thousands of years, people who we don't even know, everyday indigenous people, learn how to grow crops in harmony with nature. By the way, a paper just came out about several months ago showing ultra-low levels of Roundup cause fatty liver disease, which is uh, onset of diabetes. So I'm going to end there, but I can tell you one of the core parts of our campaign is a need for clean food and real food. It's like this is not even left or right anymore. And Elizabeth Warren voted for the Monsanto Protection Act. Elizabeth Warren voted for the Monsanto Protection Act. And everyone should know that. You know, she's a fake fighter. And what's happened now is we live in a world now people can put enough media, enough political consultants, and they can completely make, you know, a fake Indian be a real Indian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a fake fighter appears as a real fighter, but she cares about one thing. She's a self-serving elitist. Beyond that, we have this phenomenon going on that if you combine enough media power, um, you can rewrite total narratives. And that's what the real fight is about. And the only way to do that is to give everyday working people, people actually know science and engineering in government versus these lawyer, lobbyist, academics. Anyway, I'll take questions. I don't really have a question, but in my statement, like, I've been seeing uh, the same thing with my, my major social psychology. Yeah. And I've determined that because I was like, I don't think sociology has all the answers. I don't think psychology has all the answers. And in fact, I've also done minors in biology myself just to uh, you know get the I think you need all of them to get the full grasp on uh, human behavior and uh, you've been doing the same thing with uh, you know all the different systems everyone keeps saying oh my system is the one that's the most important and they may play off the other ones like oh, okay that exists but it's not as big no they all always interact yeah, I mean, the reality is I'm a systems guy, right? Mm -hmm. So the reality is, if you think, remember the old elephant? You have the elephant and different people touching parts. Mm -hmm. So the problem with that model is that you can create your own narratives, right? So you, if, like I said, if you look at the tusk of the, remember it's the story of Buddha who brings the elephant and he asks six blind men what they see. The guy who touches a tusk says he sees a spear. The guy who touches a tail says he sees a brush, etc. The problem is that um, this is a way that you bamboozle the public when you don't share the whole, but you, you, you take little parts and then you rewrite whole narratives on it. System science is a way to resolve that. We start figuring out how you can interconnect the parts and the truth emerges from that. And my view is that systems theory, system science should be taught at the grade school. Because what we're teaching people is little pieces. And when you teach people that way, it makes them what's called reductionist. You never see the whole, you see the components and you can essentially create a dumb electric that can be bamboozled. Is there any other research that people are, are doing and like following up on this to show the actual like health side effects to it? Oh yeah, yeah, so let me show you. It's a great question. Um, after we published our stuff, we published another paper more recently, end of last year. Um, what I can show you, I'll, I'll try to find it, but what we published was we basically showed that we published a fifth paper where we actually looked at the GMO and the non-GMO version and we found research in Leeds in London that was done in the UK where people had actually grown the soy plant in a greenhouse. 
And they got the exact same results, 250% difference in glutathione. And we published that recently. My, my point is this, right? Why is it that very few researchers are even exposing Monsanto? And meanwhile, tons of public funding is going to pay these scientists. And no one's holding them accountable. That's really the question. And the narrative has been built up, we need these foods to feed the world's population, you know? Yeah? Do you think Bill Walt's going to get into the Sun race? Bill Well? Yeah. I don't know, it doesn't matter. He's just part of the whole nonsense. Mm -hmm. yeah. Bill Well, Old Man Kingston, you know, all these dirty guys, Beth Lindstrom, lottery person. None of these people have... And you got two independent candidates. You got John Devine and Joshua Ford, who's the deputy sheriff yeah. of Sussex County. Yeah. I don't know what these guys stand for. Uh, All I know is I don't need to be doing this. And uh, I'm doing it because I think we're at a 21st century. If you look at the situation right now in Massachusetts for every 17 skilled job openings, we only have one person skilled for that. We're supposed to be, I mean, you guys have beautiful buildings here. How many people are getting their jobs after they leave? Are they prepared for the 21st century? That's really the question. So who's really, Miles said he paid 30K. Is that how much you guys are paying for tuition? It's, yeah, it's a lot. It's, oh, for out-of-state. Out-of-state, it's 30K, yeah. and in-state's like 10K. Yeah, so you're leaving with about 50K loans by the time you're done. I'm trying not to do loans. Yeah, <laughs> but if, if it's work-study. One of the things I believe, I think we should get rid of all these student loans. Everyone should do work-study and co-ops, and because you learn a lot more from that. You don't learn a lot in these classrooms, frankly. I wish I could do work-study, but then I don't qualify because I don't, I'm not living a poor enough family to right. qualify. What, what do you think about getting rid of all financial aid completely? Because if you get rid of all financial aid completely, your entire like tuition just skyrockets down because they, uh, I think me and, um, and me and another person had a conversation about this. The only reason why tuition is so high is because the universities know that they're going to get the money from the government. If they if they stop the financial you, aid, you, you hit it right on the head. Yeah. yeah. If you stop the financial aid, you could literally go and pay for a class for hundred dollars. Yeah. So, so, so what you're pointing out, there's a racket right now between the universities and the quote unquote Sally Mae, right? So they call it a student loan. Who who has a student loan here? Did you ever see the money? It never went into your bank account. That would mean it's your loan. It literally goes from the government right to the university. So year over year over year, the universities can keep cranking up tuition because once they accept you, your family is so happy you got accepted, the money literally goes from the government to the institution. There's no incentive here for them to reduce tuition. And you can't declare bankruptcy. And you can't declare bankruptcy by the way the laws are set up. Mm -hmm. So I think we should completely eliminate student loans because what and the other thing is community colleges should also be allowed to give four-year degrees because that'll create a competitive environment. So they want to limit the number of universities. They want you to get into student loans, so you leave, you know, into a debt situation. The entire corporate model is to make you a consumer of stuff and have you in debt. That's the model. And they started at a very very young age. But if you increase both tech schools, if you increase the ability for 
and community colleges issue four-year degrees, now you have competition. Charges. And you eliminate and you eliminate student loans. Now these guys can't, it's gonna have to be market-based. Yep. I, uh, I went to a technical high school, so I got a computer tech education as long as the Yeah, you'll be able to get a job then. Yeah, I'm doing IT here, so I'm hoping I get the job in the future. Right. Uh, yeah, um, I guess since this is the question and answer part, if you get elected, will you be like promoting like technical education and that kind of stuff different high schools? Yeah, like charter schools. Yeah, yeah. I, look, you know, I think it's you know if you don't know technical stuff in the 21st century, you know I love Shakespeare, you know I love writing, mm -hmm. but you know we're going to be completely destroyed. Yeah. Because you and forget even the competitive issue, just to be able to survive in the modern world. Um, you're going to have a huge competitive disadvantage. So, uh, and I think the way that many of these courses, are, I mean, there, there needs to be a revamping. Teachers need to be given more power. Teachers are actually pretty smart. What's happened is the teachers' unions have, have uh, disempowered them. Um, teachers should be able to say, okay, he's a smart kid. I'll give him, you know, the advanced curriculum. I can teach him this. They should be able to have because they're the ones delivering the knowledge. You know, they're the uh, feed on the street. The same thing has occurred in medicine. You know, they've removed all the power from the doctor. So doctors just have to follow a protocol that's dictated by insurance company. And the doctor may see you, a, a friend of ours we was just speaking to, she's an anesthesiologist, a spine surgeon, she goes, I've been doing this for years, but the protocol says I gotta give you three shots of pain meds. When I don't, I know you don't need it, but I'm supposed to do that. So you have people in little ivory towers dictating to the practitioners what they should do. That's Obamacare, right? And so what's ironic is Warren talks about that she wants to help, right? The small guy, everything she's doing is the corporatization of medicine, the corporatization of banking, the corporatization of education. It's actually creating big versus um, believing in the people on the ground. Do you think Elizabeth Warren actually doesn't know the implications of her policies? Or do you think she actually believes in them, that she's actually... No, I think she's just a part of... She's a fake. Yeah. Whatever she can to do to get elected. You know, I'm sure she eats That's organic food. Is. You know, I see her at Henrietta's eating organic food, okay? So it's, this is the same thing with all of these people. You know, for them and their families, I'm sure Hillary Clinton doesn't feed her, you know, her grandchildren, you know, Monsanto pesticides, yeah. right? And I'm sure they're very aware of what they're putting in their mouth. Right, for the, for the rest of us, you know, they create this narrative because they get funded by Monsanto. I just finished a movie with Pierce Brosnan, who was, used to be 007. He just produced a movie called Poisoning Paradise. His wife's an investigative reporter. I'm the, one of the main scientists in it, talking about what occurred in the island of Hawaii, which is used as a, as a test bed. So, um, you know, Warren's part of this. She's a fake fighter. And it's unfortunate that these PACs, you know, support pe people like this. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, uh, one question is on going and, back. And, you know, they have a researcher here who's probably trying yeah. to figure out what I'm saying, right? And trying to figure out how to refute it. And it's unfortunate they're wasting your, you know, they're going to use intelligence like that to figure out, let's see how we can manipulate Shiva's words. Yeah. Let's see how we can manipulate the science to make her look good. And that's where most of intellectual knowledge is being spent. You yeah. know, people are spending a lot of, they're creating dweebs who basically go and manipulate truth full-time. That's what they do. Full-time job, manipulate truth. Character assassinate people, attack people, and that's what we've created. And, it need, and, and so my view is all of these career politicians need to go. 
It was never part of the model. You know, we shouldn't be asking people's political resumes. We should be asking, what have you actually done to create a job? Can you solve the differential equation? Do you know what that means? Seriously, do any of these guys know what dynamics are? Do they know what AI means? Do they know how to build a business? Do they, can they read a profit and loss statement? Can they read a balance sheet? Probably none of these guys know what the hell they're reading. So they have multiple layers of a bunch of other dweebs who tell them what to do. It's complete nonsense, guys. Complete nonsense. Well, that's how like, our monetary system is run off by the Federal Reserve. It's complete nonsense as well. Yeah, I'm just saying that Einstein said something which I thought was telling. He said, the more you remove people from the actual work that they do, you create layers and layers and layers and layers. I mean, in my case, you know, I know how to still write code. I know how to design software. I know what all, all the stuff I'm talking about. I don't need consultants. All these people have to hire guys like him over there to tell them what to think. They have to hire researchers to write their stupid reports. Seriously. It's complete insanity. And they're taking money. I'm talking about both parties. They take money from poor people, give them to PACs, and then the PACs, you know, are paying themselves, people like him money, others money. It's a racket. I, I think the best... It's so... It's Everyone should be angry at this. If people really knew what was going on, we'd have a revolution in this country. Yeah. I think the best thing is, is when you have people that are trying to spy on you and you are saying the right things all the time, like you always do. And because that just shows how the opposition is so great. And like, the thing is, I, I gotta say, like, do you really expect someone at like a Beth Lindstrom or John Kingston event? No, because they're looking to be in the system. They're looking to, like, I, you know how long I've been involved. They're looking to be a system, looking to be part of the system. They're looking to just be a name. They're not looking to be Elizabeth Warren. They're looking to just be a name and be part of the system. There's people like you and Jeff Deal who actually have vested interest. In I don't it. think Jeff Deal has a vested interest. He, he made a fake. Yeah. I don't and know what I'm saying. Like, Jeff Deal is not, is he's like established number two, basically. He's a not so obvious establishment. Yeah. Okay? One of the things that you've got to be aware of, there's a dynamic that occurs in politics. The obvious establishment, Hillary Clinton, the change agents like myself, Trump, and then the not-so-obvious fake fighters like Jeff Deal, yeah. who basically needs to bring Trump voters to Charlie Baker. Okay, And those people are the more insidious ones. Elizabeth Warren and Jeff Deal are very similar. They're the not-so-obvious establishment. And they're the ones who need to be completely skinned and exposed for what they are. They need to be scalped. Okay, because they're the ones who manipulate truth. Jeff Deal did a fake picture of him shaking Donald Trump's hand. There's three hands in the picture. He photoshopped. The guy can't even photoshop well. <laughs> You're right. I mean, these people are really, you know, I don't have enough nice words to say, for, you know. And I think, I think uh, the Trump victory was something magnificent. Whether you like Donald Trump or not, the issue is it shows that people are tired of this nonsense, that they want real change. And now, after that, you'll see the not-so-obvious establishment, the fake Trumpers coming. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what's going on. 
You know, but the thing is, you guys need to. Be, part of my speaking here is to let you guys know you actually get angry about this. It's it's not a bad thing. Righteous anger is a good thing. Well, you were talking about the teachers' union. They do a really good job of brainwashing all the students here. It's ridiculous. Like, oh yeah. The, the, all the students think they're like the teachers' unions are, are there to help them, but they're not. It's the complete opposite. Yeah. When I, you know, in 1978, I had a teacher who gave me the standard math curriculum. He had, this was before the Department of Education screwed up everything. And he saw me wanting to study, and he gave me a whole other curriculum. So that's why I was able to finish calculus by the ninth grade. And people who, you know, had issues, he helped them. So teachers weren't just falling like a robot. If that's the case, you don't need a teacher. Just, you know, put it on the iPhone. Yeah, a lot of, we, yeah. I mean, a lot of these classes, these teachers don't try. It's, yeah. They don't care about their job. I can see that. So I'm saying it really comes down to us. It, it is supposed to be the government of the people. It's up to us. You know, these people have built auras as though they're somebody, but they're frankly should be really looked at from the original thing. What have they actually contributed? Uh, one last question, I guess. Yeah. Uh, uh, what do you think is the solution? Like, do you think like more like cooperative farming? Do you think that that would be? Yeah, let's talk about that. So there are and solutions. One, one last question. On yeah. What are like the real like health side effects of GMO? Say, if you took two two people, one person that was just taking yeah. GMOs the rest of his life, and someone that wasn't, would you actually see like a? Big yeah. So it's a great question. See, when you're looking at these large studies like this, um, it's hard to do it in a test tube, right? Because we're talking about giving food. It's like saying, I feed a bunch of people McDonald's and another bunch of people Burger King. Or what's the difference? Well, you have to do it over long periods of time. You follow what I'm saying? That's why mathematical modeling is so powerful. Because there's no way to kill enough animals to figure this out, or do enough test tube testing, or do enough clinical trials. We don't build airplanes by just randomly creating all different designs. It's done on the computer, right? That's modern 21st century science. That's what cytosol is. That's what email was, right, at that time. And that's why the brainless people in Washington don't understand any of this. And so you have to use technology. So the, the reality to your question is that the reason I shared that with you, we went down the fundamentals of the C1 met met metabolic pathway. No one can argue with us on that. There's no like, a plus B, you know, sodium plus chloride gives sodium chloride, right? There's no argument. So all of those chemical equations are inarguable. They're coming from actual literature, and we connected them together at the molecular systems level. So you can't do this over unless you have long periods of times, and these guys know that. So that's why a, a cytosol is such a threat to them, because we're, it's the same thing that we used how to understand you know, dynamics of flight. That's what we're doing here. So let's get back to your question around the, so more and more papers are coming out, like with glyphosate, which is a pesticide, they found it in women's tampons, okay, because they use, use it for cotton. Um, they found ultra low levels, it's, it's a nature paper, causes fatty liver disease in animals. Okay, but you can extrapolate that in, in some ways to larger mammals. So you have, the, the issue for me is, there is no safety assessment standards because the way substantial equivalence is done is it's about the same, we just sort of guess it. There's no science to it. So why are we allowing that? That's really the fundamental issue. Everything in this room, I don't know if you know, there's standards, like for the light bulb, for computers, 
uh, ergonomic things. I mean, you can't really put anything out there unless they're called standards organizations. There's no safety assessment standards for GMOs. The eyeglasses you wear, right? There's ophthalmologist associations that have to do standardization. They have to make sure it doesn't hurt your eyes, you know? Elizabeth Warren's trying to get over-the-counter ear, ear, uh, hearing aids. Sounds good, but she's in collusion with a company called Doppler Labs, which wasn't making any money, which got 70 million BC funded, and she's writing articles in the New England Journal of Medicine saying how great over-the-counter hearing aids are. Complete fraud. But do you yep. think that the solution is to have government do the regulation or to have consumer watchdog organizations in the private sector? Uh, look, what's happened is the government is already... So let's talk about this, right? This is a very interesting question you bring up because there, the assumption is that we have market forces. Okay? The reality is Monsanto is a monopoly in this in glyphosate. Right? So people talk about capitalism as though we're living in this age of where free capitalism reigns. It doesn't. It's all a racket. We have the corporatization of capitalism. There is no free capitalism. This is the problem I have sometimes with the theoretical libertarians. They don't, they're talking as though that we have you know, free capitalism and then we don't want regulation. The reality is that we actually have, that's, I mean, we're not even, forget that. We're like the train has gotten by. Four major telcos control everything you hear, listen, and watch. Telecommunications companies. Google and Facebook are watching all your emails. So what are we talking about? Those guys have already subverted the whole process. We've destroyed the postal service, which gave us the opportunity to send you a letter, and if anyone intervened, it was a 20-year sentence in prison. Google and Facebook own our emails, right? So, and this has occurred because of the fact that career politicians who are not technologists, who are not scientists, let this all happen, because they got paid during PAC money, whatever you want to go look at. They don't, they don't care about the implications of what it means. We talk about the Second Amendment, right? Which is important. But no one talks about the fact that freedom of communication, which has been completely subverted, when email volume overtook postal mail volume in 1997. When you sign up for your free email, go read the privacy. They own your email. So the haves will have their, free, their, their private email servers, and the have-nots will be using quote-unquote free email. That's why, to me, there's a book I wrote called The Future of Email. The whole issue with Hillary Clinton is that it's showing that the people in power will start having their private email servers. So they can have deniability on emails, they can protect their emails, and the rest of us will be using, you know, unsecure servers. Yep. What do you think about uh, oil leads from all, all over the world, actually, cooperate to put more environmental regulations um, and do such things as illegal uh, different agendas on papers, how to basically limit industrialization in total economy in the U.S. Do you think it's a problem or not? What, what are you talking about? You're talking about climate change, like <coughs> regulations? Yes. Yeah, so there's a great video if you have a chance on, I did it, if you go on YouTube, look at Paris Accords, um, on the Paris Accords related to climate change, and I completely expose it. This is why it's interesting about my candidacy. On the one hand, I can be against Monsanto, and the fact that GMOs don't have no safety assessment standards, but I, I can also expose the Paris Accords. They have nothing to do whatsoever with helping alleviate pollution 
you know, taking the plastics out of the ocean or helping landfills. What they have to do is making sure Al Gore and his compatriots get very wealthy. If you really look, and so it's a video, if you look up Shiva Yadure Paris Accords, I do a little sketch and I walk you through the whole thing. But the reality is that, to keep it very simply, if you take China by way of example, today China pollutes, you know how much carbon tons? Tons of carbon? Anyone know? 160 million? 11 billion. Today, 11 billion tons of carbon. Okay? Now, according to the Paris Accords, how much tons of carbon do you think China will do in 2030? Right? Because they're supposed to help regulate them, right? What will happen in 2030? Same. No, 22 billion. They're allowed to pollute further another 11 billion. And after 2030, a carbon tax will kick in. Meanwhile, the carbon credit is actually an equity that they're trading on the public market. So after 2030, it's going to skyrocket the value of these credits, and that's when all these guys will cash in. The green fund that they created was essentially a fund that we were going to use to pay off the influencers in these countries to be part of the Paris Accords. It's, it was payoff money. Trump figured this out. Um, and by the way, you know, we can get into a debate of climate change, but I can tell you this one thing, the guy who came up with this climate change model originally set the average temperature of the Earth between 1950 to 1980 as, guess what temperature it was? 15 degrees. Well, 1997 comes, and you know, they're predicting climate change, and guess what the uh, temperature was in 1997? It was 14.7. It actually went down. So in a footnote, this is in the New York Times, in an email, overnight he says, oh, the new 14 is the new 15. Basically, they moved the goalpost. They said the new average temperature is 14 degrees. It was done in an email. So what I'm trying to say is that if you really want to solve pollution, we need innovation, not regulation. If we want to get rid of the plastics, it's going to be innovation. There's amazing technologies entrepreneurs have created, but the crony capitalists will never let the stuff get out. So you have technologies at work. We have amazing permaculture is an amazing model that's existed for years to do soil uh, replenishment. People have shown it can generate anywhere between five to eight times more yield than you know pesticide and herbicide-ridden crops. So we already have technologies, guys. It's these basically these guys who are criminals. We give so much you know, unfortunate, you know, homage to, from Elizabeth Warren on down. I feel like it's going to be really hard to wake people up. What's that? I feel like it's going to be really hard. No, to it's already happening. Yeah. Trump's winning, what, the reason Trump's winning is so powerful is because the elites in the West Coast, Hollywood elites in the East Coast, right where we are, a lot at UMass Boston right here, they never thought that this guy was going to win. But they didn't understand that, you know, the poor whites in this country are also a majority, by the way, who are being screwed over, that they just thought, they just try to brand them as rednecks. And their voices were never being heard. They had legitimate concerns. And when Trump won, these guys weren't so upset that Trump won. They were more upset that they lost control. Remember what I said in the beginning? Academics don't care about, frankly, money that much. They care about control. They want to be the head of the department who writes the paper that everyone reads. They want to be the consultant who's called in and everyone quietly listens to them as the expert. You following me? So the experts lost and the people won. That's what they're upset at. 
all the Hollywood people, they thought, you know, you know, we do our movies and we do, we're the celebrities, people follow us. And that's why, uh, you know, in Massachusetts, remember, there's 2.3 million independent voters. One, you know, 1.3 million don't even vote. They don't, they don't like Warren. One million are independents. They don't like Warren. Among the Democrats, 40% don't like Warren. And the Republicans are just Democrats in sheep's clothing, and they don't even know what they are. You know, they just want to be elected, and they'll say anything. I'm for Trump, I'm for this, you know, whatever it takes to get a job. Where do you think this state is going if uh, we keep uh, um, Elizabeth in the Senate? It's going to go the way of Connecticut. Connecticut is going bankrupt. I don't know if you guys know, if you look at the municipalities throughout the United States, there's going to be $200 trillion. Forget even, I'm not talking, student loan debt, when that bubble is $1.2 trillion, we're looking at $200 trillion. You have to go back to, as a business person, you have to create revenue. And the revenue comes from skilled people. If you have a situation for every 17 skilled jobs, one person's only skilled, we don't have enough revenue. So the Republicans and Democrats sort of BS people saying, raise taxes, lower taxes, raise taxes. That's not the issue. We don't have enough people who are skilled. Of the $4 trillion in tax revenue we collect, that's coming from, that's coming from only 10% of the people. 80% of the tax revenue is coming from 10% of the people. And some of those skilled people can't work for certain companies due to things like affirmative action. Yeah. Uh, my wife's one of those. She's, you know, you'd think being an immigrant would have gotten her, you know, ahead of the line. Is she Chinese or? No, she's Italian, so she's Caucasian. I and said. she's been told by many uh, companies, we'd love to hire you. She's yeah. Got, she's got a PhD in economics. And, um, but we just can't because we're at our quota on whites. Yeah. <laughs> See, what you have to understand with affirmative action is that the reality is Mexican American, indigenous Mexican Americans and blacks were mistreated. And that's a fact. We have to look at it the following way. The Republicans don't want to address the racism issue, and the Democrats take advantage of the racism issue. Both are manipulating race. Elizabeth Warren lied on her thing to get in there, right? And the Republicans don't want to understand, discuss race because there is racism. So when you look at the facts of uh, the African Americans and what they underwent, it was pretty horrible. And they were given a, a, a distasteful position in the society. Same with when we stole the land from Mexican American people. Now, what civil rights did was pe everyday people were out there fighting. What the politicians did was they implemented Band-Aid solutions. They never wanted to address the infrastructure issues in this country. They never wanted to go and make sure that, you know, in places like Dorchester and Rock, there was enough, you know, good teachers. There was, people could take their books home. So they said, you know what, we're going to help with affirmative action. They threw that as a bone to the masses on the streets to quiet them down. Okay? Now that bone, uh, like at MIT, for example, in, in the early 70s, um, 10 students came in, black students. Uh, approximately that number, and then they said, you know what, we're never going to succeed here. We, we, we didn't have enough college training to, to do well here. You know, you, you let us in to say, oh, we did the right thing, the liberal right thing. So they then demanded that MIT set up tuition courses, you know, because they were never, they didn't get that training. You see, so this was all Band-Aid solutions. And still now, 
you know, what was interesting with this free speech rally, you have Marty Walsh and Charlie Baker saying, yeah, we don't want neo-Nazis and white supremacists calling me a neo-Nazi. But these guys are absolute racists. They don't do enough to do anything for the infrastructure in this country. They're all into pandering when it's to their benefit. So what they do is they pit blacks against whites. So you're wondering, oh, my wife didn't get, you know, so it's black on white. It's not affirmative action. It's the politicians who created bogus programs. You see what I'm saying? We have to look at the real enemy. It's not the blacks, it's not the whites. It's not quote unquote white supremacy or black supremacy. This is all BS, it's the politicians. They created this so we never attack them and get them all out of office. So they create left and right, right? Liberal and conservative. It's all nonsense. No one knows what a liberal is. These are, we need to use our mind, which is what God gave us. And we need to look at a situation, use our brain, use laws of physics, and understand these things. It's very easy to brand someone this label or that label, because then you can just move on and you can get this person elected, etc. I wouldn't also really call it a band-aid because I finally did get a job position. Uh, no, I'm saying affirmative action was oh, a band-aid. No, no, I'm, yeah. uh, I'm still going to address that. Yeah. Um, no, I'm saying it's not a not really a band-aid. When she finally did get her job, she uh, had you know the company had some interns come in, you know, young high schoolers, learning you know how a business really functions and all the different pieces. And um, there was uh, two black students and. They weren't paying attention, and they're like, "Hey, you're here. We're giving up some of our time to train you and teach you how you know the kind of real world works." And they said, "We don't need to listen. We're, we're black. We're going to get a job regardless of what we do or don't." Yeah. So that affirmative action. That is what right, but it's setting thing. both sides for failure. Yep. See what I'm saying? But that's what politicians do. They care about getting elected. Right. That's what they care about because they don't have jobs. I don't need to do this. I can go create stuff, right? I can go start another company. I had I have skills. These guys have zero skills. And they know the Federal Reserve is just going to print their money. So. Exactly. I mean, after this Boston Free Speech thing, everyone, oh, we're against white supremacy. We're against this. You know, let's pass proclamations. Some guy, Marty Lamb and DLR, let's brand Black Lives Matter as also a hate group. You know, this is what they do. You know, they do proclamations. They weren't out there supporting free speech. So I'm saying we as people need to start realizing that all of these career politicians, if they don't have a history of working, if they don't have a job to go back to, they're dependent on that job. Anyway, th thanks a lot. I think it's, thanks for having me.